Well, as they make their way uh, down to class, I encourage you to make your way into the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. Uh, we're continuing to kind of move slowly through the account uh, in Luke of uh, the birth of Jesus as part of our Christmas celebration. And this morning we're going to look a little more at actually the account of uh, the birth of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner and the herald of uh, that God appointed to prepare the nation of Israel for Messiah and to identify him when he arrived. Uh, and the section we're looking at today is found in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. Uh, but as you make your way there, let me ask you this question. Uh, what would be the first thing that you had would say if you hadn't spoken in more than 10 months and suddenly regained your speech? Because that was the situation for Zechariah, uh, this aged priest who was father of John the Baptist. Uh, those of you who know, uh, know me, as an example, know that I like to talk. And, and in 27 years of being married to Karen, I think there have probably been at least a few hours, maybe even a few days, where she wishes that I would be so struck dumb and unable to speak. Uh, but uh, be the answer to some of her prayers. Uh, she's a much more introverted person. She's usually out of words at the end of the day. Um, and if nobody's come to see me at the office, she'll say something to me like, nobody came to see you today, huh? That means I'm going to get all the words. <laughs> but yeah, you better buckle your seatbelt, honey. Um, but in any case, um, you know, in reality, to, to not be able to talk even for a couple of days is a long time. A month would be a while. But Ten months. Zechariah has been unable to talk, have any real conversations. Uh, with the people that you love. And honestly, that is a huge burden. Amen? He's having to write out on a tablet everything he wants to say. And of course, writing everything you want to say is a pain. And so you probably say a lot less than what you really want to say, especially when you've had the most significant thing happen to you that has ever happened to you in your life. You're an old man having your firstborn child. The child for whom you and your wife have prayed your entire lives and have never seen, and she is pregnant right now. And you can't tell anybody with your mouth about what's happening and what you're thinking and what you're feeling. About what it was like to stand in the temple and see that angel. And if that's the situation that you're in, you haven't spoken in ten months, and now all of a sudden you can. What's the thing, first thing you say? You say, whew, glad that's over. <laughs> right? Oh, it's about time. I've been holding some stuff in. <laughs> you know, be prepared to hear everything I want to tell you. Would you start telling all the things you've kept bottled up for most of the last year? Or would you pray, offering God praise for the abundant miracles you've experienced in all this? Well, what Zechariah does is he prays. And his mouth is just filled with an overflow of praise. So much so 
that this prayer is traditionally called the Benedictus, uh, because in Latin, the first words of his prayer are, are that word. It means blessed be. Blessed be. And it has a lot to teach us about how to praise God in worship. So I invite you all to stand if you're able and uh, follow along as I read verses 67 to 80 of Luke chapter 1. This is what God's Word says to us by His Holy Spirit. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. And holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. God, our Father, as we sang, as we look around the world, we know that there is no peace. There is war in, in, in the homeland of your people, Israel. There's war in Ukraine. There may be, at some point, war in the Pacific between China and Taiwan. There is war all around the world. Hate is strong. And it mocks the song of peace on earth goodwill toward men. But Father, 2,000 years ago at Christmas, you established the beachhead. The invasion of the Son of God has come. And you are now beating back the darkness all over the world. As the gospel advances, sin retreats. Evil has to flee. And Father, we are so pleased and blessed to be part of it. We look forward to the day when Jesus will come in victory, final victory, over all these things. The day when everything sad becomes untrue. Father, until that day, we pray that you would help us continue to look with hope to the God who has kept every promise he has ever made. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, um, this, this section of Scripture begins by pointing out that 
Zechariah is about to say what he says because he is suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, just as his wife Elizabeth, uh, his infant son John had been earlier in the chapter, just as Mary was when she gave her Magnificat. Uh, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not something that happened all the time. You know, we live in the post-Pentecost era as believers when everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit at their conversion. And so we're kind of used to, well, obviously they're filled with the Spirit, right? But this is not something that happened to everybody at all times. And so the Spirit came and went, uh, which is why David prays in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? And we don't have to pray that way anymore. But David did because the Spirit didn't always rest on someone. But here the Holy Spirit comes to Zechariah, and as a result, praise to God comes pouring out of his mouth. Um, one commentator pointed out that there are at least 30 allusions to other parts of the Bible here. And I'm not going to point you to every single passage, and we're certainly not going to look up every single one. Um, but, um, but the reality is, is that Zechariah's heart is saturated with his Bible. And so all of these phrases that you're going to read are, have direct links back somewhere uh, else in the Old Testament. And he is calling back to God, keeping his promises. And what we can see in this, uh, in this psalm, and it really is a psalm uh, in its form, it, it follows the book of Psalms, uh, that, that, that structure of those poems almost identically uh, and it, you, you see this expanding parallelism all the way through. But the first thing he praises God for is that God is the God who kept the Davidic covenant. Now, if you're a newer Christian uh, or new to church, you might not know what the Davidic covenant is. Okay, it's, But basically what it is, it's a fancy way of saying promises that God made to David. King David uh, in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This was after David had become king. He'd been king for a while by then, but he had established his kingship uh, first in Hebron, and then later David took the city of Jerusalem from the Canaanites, the Jebusites who, uh, who lived there, and he had this brilliant plan. I'm going to build for God a, a permanent temple, and I'm going to replace the tabernacle tent that we've been using since Moses' day 500 years in the past, they've been using, God has been dwelling in the tabernacle. Well, we need a permanent structure. Now we have a permanent home. God has given us a permanent home, so let's make God a permanent home. Let's build a temple here in Jerusalem. And Nathan the prophet says, you've got the right idea. God is with you. Get started. And then that night, God comes and speaks to the prophet Nathan and says, uh, hold on, you might want to check with me first. And, um, and he says, David is not going to be the one to build me a house. His son Solomon will be the one to build me the temple. But because of David's heart to worship me and to bring me glory, I'm going to build him a house. By that, what he meant was not a structure to live in, but a dynasty. And he said, all of your descendants will have the right to rule over my people. And the 
kings that descend from David will be the only legitimate rulers in the nation of Israel. Forever afterwards, the only legitimate rulers to come in the house of in, in the in the to the people of Israel come from David's family. Now, at this time that Zechariah is proclaiming these words in 67, 68, 69 here, at the time that Zechariah is saying this, it has, it has been since 586 B.C. This is right around 1 B.C. So it's been 585 years at this moment, that there has since there has been a Davidic king. And the last one that there was didn't really wasn't king over very much. He was kind of king over the city of Jerusalem, and that was it. More like the mayor than he was king of a kingdom, per se. But Zechariah is praising God for the deliverance of Israel. In fact, Zechariah speaks as if it has already happened. Look at it. If you look at it now, now this is a, a little bit of English grammar, but you, you need to know this. Okay? If you look at those, uh, those words in, in uh, 68 and 69 there, you see that ED ending at the end of visited, redeemed, raised, it's an indicator for the fact that these are verbs that are in the past tense. He is speaking as if these things have already occurred, even though they are happening in front of him. Why does he talk that way? Does he not know better? Is he just a hillbilly who doesn't understand verb tense? No, that's not it. What he's saying is this. Look, my wife, has just given birth to the forerunner. I've just spent the last three months of my life with the girl who is pregnant with the Messiah. So what do I know has already happened? God has delivered his people. Because Zechariah is so confident that this, if this is what the angel has said that it is, then the deliverance of Israel has already begun. It's already started happening in the past. So I can speak of the fulfillment of this as if it's already complete, even though both of these boys, one of them is not even born yet. The deliverance of Israel has begun. And so Zechariah praises God because he knows that contrary to what a lot of people might think, that after nearly 600 years without a Davidic king, after nearly 400 years with no prophetic word from God, God has not forgotten either His covenant people or His covenant with David. Messiah is coming, and He will be a horn of deliverance. Well, what does that mean? That's a reference back to Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, David prays, and he says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's images of both safety and victory. The horn here is symbolic 
uh, it's the, alluding to the way that a wild ox, you know, think of Cape Buffalo, okay, or a ram. Like you've seen like Wild America or one of those TV shows, you know, where they have the big ram on the front and they come running across the mountain and whack into the other one, right? What are they doing? They're winning that battle, right? Or if you come across a Cape Buffalo over in Africa, those things have hooves the size of a dinner plate. And if they, if they think that you have a bad intentions toward any of the girls in the, in the herd there, they will run over to you, knock you down with the horns, and stomp you into a mud hole. Okay? It's the idea of the strength of this animal. The dangerous part of this animal that will rescue you, that will knock down your enemy, that will deliver you strong. You can take refuge in God's deliverance. He will defend and protect you. God is raising up Messiah. He is raising up one who is strong, who will deliver his people. Also, he praises God who kept the prophets' promises of salvation. And you know, if you if you try and really, you know, we're all being very Western and linear and kind of breaking all this down. But this is poetry, okay? And so this the words just kind of flow from one section to the next. It's music. It's poetry. And so he, he says, and by the way, when the Deliverer is coming, what's going to happen is that he's going to be the one who keeps all the prophets' promises of salvation. So verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In other words, since the ancient days, God has been speaking of salvation. The prophets all promised the day when Israel's enemies would be defeated and they would be completely delivered as his people. So, for example, in Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we read these words about Messiah's reign. Micah wrote, He shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his own vine and fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. A bit later, the prophet Micah writes in Micah chapter 5, verse 4, we read of Messiah's coming. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Zechariah knows that since Messiah is here, that the days of salvation and peace for God's people are coming too. Now men and women, beloved, those days of peace are not here yet, are they? Nobody's turning tanks into John Deere. Not yet. But are they coming? Yes. How do we know? Because Messiah is here. We're not yet turning rifles and pruning hooks. 
that Messiah is here. And the day is coming. And since Messiah has come, we know He is coming to establish peace and deliver final salvation to all God's people. Amen? And it flows from there into 72 to 75 where He praises God for keeping the Abrahamic covenant. Now again, that's a word for promises to Abraham that are permanent. Okay? When you get married, you swear a covenant before God to the person that you marry. It is an irrevocable promise that you make before the, before the Lord. Right? Now sometimes in our world, because we're sinners and we're broken, we break our covenant. But God never does. God never does. And so again, praise for these promises being kept flows into additional praise for God keeping the promises to Abraham that his children would be delivered from their enemies and able to serve God without fear and in holiness and righteousness forever. Well, how will that happen? Well, when Messiah comes, he will establish peace by defeating all of the wicked forever. You want to know how that goes down? Read Revelation chapter 19. It says, And I looked, and behold, a rider on a white horse. And out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword. And he bears a name known only to himself. And on his thigh is written the word faithful. I come to judge the nation. He comes to judge the wicked of the world, not because he hates them, but because he loves us. And he wants us, his people, to live permanently in peace. In which nothing of evil, nothing of sin, nothing of corruption will ever be allowed to touch us. Right? It's the same reason you put locks on your door. In other words. Because you want to keep evil outside. And so God eventually does that. He shuts evil outside where it cannot touch his people. Because he loves them. And all of the people who belong to God, both the natural children of Abraham, those Jews who are descended from him by, by, uh, by lineal, uh, genealogical, genetic descent, and also us, the adopted children of Abraham, who put their faith in the Messiah, who is Abraham's greater descendant, who are adopted into Abraham's family. Gentiles who grafted in. All of us together will worship and serve God in peace forever. Amen? And so Zechariah praises the Lord for keeping his promise, keeping his promise to Abraham. Abraham at, at the time of Zechariah is 2,000 years in the past. For us, he's 4,000 years in the past. But the promise made to Abraham still stands. The promise made to David 1,000 years before Zechariah still stands promise made here to us 2,000 years ago 
still stands. God will keep that promise. And we are looking forward to His complete fulfillment. And this psalm of praise comes to a crescendo at the end. Those of you who don't know what a crescendo is, it means the entire orchestra gets loud. Okay? Everybody just, it gets, it just hits the high point of the whole thing in the last section, verses 76 to 80. But Zechariah turns to his own son and he says, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is, this is praising God who kept all the messianic prophecies. You're going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah looks at this little eight-day-old baby in front of him. Maybe he's holding him. John, this miracle baby, who will be the forerunner and the herald, the announcer, of Messiah, the one to say, you know, like you see those old movies where they send the guy and he goes, make way! You know, those of you who've seen Aladdin, right? Where they send out the genie, make way for Prince Ali, right? This is John's job! To be the herald, to be the one who announces. This is him! This is the Messiah! This is the one of whom all of the prophets wrote. This is the guy! Follow him. Put your trust in him. Believe in Him. He is the one. Zachariah says, and you, child, and proceeds to give a description of John's career. He'll be the prophet and the forerunner who, pre who prepares the way of the Lord just like Isaiah promised in Isaiah chapter 40. Just like Malachi promised in Malachi 3 and 4. John will give the people the knowledge of salvation and how to be forgiven of their sins. How did he do that? Well, he called them to repent from sin, put their faith in Jesus in the Messiah. Because that's the only way anybody can ever receive salvation. By the way, it wasn't that in the Old Testament you had a different way of salvation than we have now. What you did was you looked forward in the Old Testament to the coming of Messiah to whom all the sacrifices were meant to point. And if you wanted to be saved, what you did was you said, Lord, I know that You are sending a Messiah. I know that, that this sacrifice is important because it reminds me that one is coming that is the final sacrifice. And here in our day, we look back on the Messiah who came, who was the final sacrifice. Amen? But the way of salvation has always been the same. It's always been by God's grace through faith either in anticipation of the one who has come, who would come, or looking back in, in worship on the one who has come. They didn't know His name. We do. They just look forward to a guy that's coming. We look back on a guy who came. Both are called to put their faith in that same person. John, so John called them to believe just as the Old Testament told them they needed to do. And this will happen, Zechariah says, 
according to verse 78, because God is one of tender mercy. I don't know how you think of God. I was talking to somebody the other day and he said, you know, when I when I was growing up in church, I, I never thought of God as the God who loves me, as the God who is eager to spend time with me, the God who wants me in his family, the God who who encourages me to address him as Abba, Father, Papa. What that would translate to the way a child would address their dad. Right? We're encouraged by Jesus himself to address God our Heavenly Father that way. With affection. Why? Because our God is a God of tender mercy. Is He the just judge of all the earth and the one who will send the wicked to hell? Yes, indeed. But not for you. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. He is a God of tender mercy. He is like the soldier who is who is his job is to defend you against the enemy. But when he comes home, all the battle regalia comes off. And he's just on the floor with his kids. Feel me? He's the God of tender mercy. He raised, he causes the sunrise to visit us. Here, this is a metaphor for what the coming of Messiah is like. Again, those of you who know me well know I like to deer hunt. You know what my favorite moment of, of the morning in the woods is? The sunrise. You're out on the marsh, maybe out here on the Illinois River and the, and just before shooting hours start to get this kind of pink light and start hearing the ducks start to quack and then maybe a few of them right at shooting hours will come right by the decoys right or if you're in the deer woods and you're up a tree I love this moment it just starts to get light. You start seeing the squirrels move around. You hear the barred owl hoot, turkeys gobble. And then maybe if you're really lucky, you see Bucky walk by. Right? <laughs> but that sunrise is an amazing moment. Especially on a day when it's really cold. And all of a sudden, the sun comes up and just warms you. And you're like, thank you, Lord. Right? I've been freezing to death here for a half an hour, and here comes the sun, right? That's the idea. Is that Messiah's coming into the world is like sunrise and darkness. All of a sudden, Everything is lit and warmed by the presence of the Son of God. It's also an illusion, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is an illusion uh, that's poetic, continues the metaphor here. It's an allusion to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 speaks of Messiah's coming like a great light shining in a place of deep darkness. Here are some of his familiar lines. In the latter days, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of, look at your Bible, deep darkness. On them a light has shone. If you keep reading that same chapter, you come to the pinnacle of Handel's Messiah, right? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Messiah's when Messiah comes, His coming dispels the darkness of sin and Satan and death because Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? In verse 80 simply notes kind of an epilogue on the story that John lived in the wilderness until he began his ministry. As we look at this section of Scripture, how do we apply this text? I certainly don't know how to pray like this. I'm not that poetic. Um, the kind of poetry I write wouldn't make a Hallmark reading card. Okay? But how do we apply this? Well, number one, it shows us how to pray and how to praise God using the Scriptures. A lot of us have good intentions when it comes to prayer. We want to be people who pray well, but we really aren't sure what, how to get started or what words to use. And we feel really clumsy and awkward, and then we're like, we pray for 15 seconds, and then we're like, yeah, that was terrible. And then we <laughs> like don't do it for a while, right? And then you feel guilty about that. And you're like, I don't even know how to get started or what to say, or how do I address the God of the universe? Well, one of the things that you see over and over in Scripture is people praying God's words back to Him. I don't know if you've noticed, but recently, over the last several years, we've been, we, uh, the last several months, maybe a couple years now, uh, we closed the Scripture with a benediction. What do we do for that? We pray the Scripture over all of you. Why? Because apparently God loves to hear His Word stated back to Him. Because you see that over and over and over in Scripture, if you don't know what words to use, you can use God's Word back to Him. And Zechariah's psalm and prayer here gives us a model to follow. He doesn't just imitate the structure of the book of Psalms. He borrows word pictures and phrases from the Psalms and from the from the prophets who also wrote in poetic form. Mary did the same thing. Mary had memorized the Song of Hannah in uh, in First Samuel uh, chapter two, and she had memorized that. And so then, 
when she prays this magnificent psalm of praise to God, a lot of the words are very similar. Right? And you and I can do the same thing. If you ever wonder why you should memorize Scripture, it's because one of the things it does is not just put the Word in your heart where the Spirit then calls it to mind in various situations, but also because it enables you to pray. God gives you the words for what you want to say to Him. It shapes your soul both in times of praise and in times of request. Amen? Also, uh, this psalm here reminds us of the fact that God never forgets His promises to His people even when it seems like they've gone unfulfilled for a long time. The reason for Advent, the reason we light candles, the reason we read Scripture, the reason we take weeks leading up to Christmas to remind us of the fact that Jesus came is because honestly we forget that God is a God who keeps His promises every single time. And so Advent functions as an annual reminder to us who always need reminding that the first Advent of Jesus is proof there will be a second one. It's been a long time. Even longer than the days between the exile and John the Baptist. But God has never yet forgotten to deliver on a promise. Now I forget all the time. I sometimes make commitments and then somebody will say something to me and I'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? Like, I have stood people up before I was supposed to meet for coffee. I get a call from the coffee shop. Hey, are you on your way? Ugh. <laughs> That's embarrassing, right? It's horrible. When you do that to somebody and you feel like such an idiot, or at least I do, but God never forgets. And trust me when I say He has not forgotten and he has not forgotten to send Jesus a second time. Why is he waiting? 2 Peter 3. He is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to him. He is giving a long, long, long time so that as many people as possible will come to faith in Jesus. And when that's done, Jesus comes. But God is not forgotten. Number three, it reveals to us the primary purpose of Messiah's coming to be the light in the darkness of the world, saving people to worship a merciful God by freeing them from sin and death. Many people in Zechariah's day look to Messiah's coming as primarily military thinking that the greater son of David would drive out the Romans from Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and Galilee the way that David defeated the Philistines and the remnants of the Canaanites en route to establishing his rule. But that isn't what Zechariah is most excited about, which was serving God without fear 
in holiness and righteousness. He was excited about the forgiveness of sin, about the knowledge of salvation, about the tender mercy of God, about the light shining in the darkness and the shadow of death. Now, beloved, I would be remiss in my responsibility as your pastor and as a preacher of God's Word if I did not say this to you. Jesus came to shine light in the darkness. And if His light is not yet shining into your darkness, that needs to change. He came that you might be set free from sin, that you might be freed from not only the, the penalty of sin, of death and separation from Him, but one day from the presence of sin in your life for eternity and of the power of sin right now over you to where you do not have to give in to its desires. When Jesus comes into your life, He shines His light in such a way that you are forgiven of your sins and experience the tender mercy of God. And they only experience it one way, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's never happened to you, don't let the only excitement for, of Christmas be lights and presents and fun claymation Christmas stories. Okay? There's a lot more to it than that. A lot more to it than that. It's about Jesus coming to save you from sin and death and the oppressive rule of Satan in the here and now and from eternal death in hell. It's a rescue mission with you in mind. So don't miss it. Jesus is the Messiah who saves you from all of that when we put our faith in His death and resurrection for us. And it's the ultimate free gift that's available for anybody who wants it. Amen? So be sure to grab that gift. You won't have to look for it under the tree. It's freely offered to you. Last thing, it teaches us to see the promises of God has already fulfilled from the moment that they have begun to be, even if they aren't completely fulfilled yet. One of the things I love about Zechariah is he speaks of, of God doing all these things that he is doing at that moment as if they've already all completely happened. Because Zechariah, it isn't that Zechariah has his, his, his verb tenses screwed up or that his understanding of time is like gone into the quantum realm or anything like that. It's that he believes God. God, having given His Word and having begun to fulfill His promises, knows that God will not fail to keep them the rest of the world. The God who has begun to keep His promises will keep them Completely, And this song teaches us to trust God the same way. To see God's promises to us in Jesus as things that we already possess, even though they're not completely ours yet in our experience. 
because of who God is, we can already be so certain they will be fully ours that we can speak of them as if we already possess them. Amen? Even though there's a not yet, there's an already aspect to all of our salvation. We're already redeemed. We're already freed from sin. We're already freed from death and hell. In a sense, we're already victorious over all of our enemies of sin and Satan and death and hell. And that victory is already ours. It's already won because God has already delivered on some of the promise and He will not fail to finish keeping the rest of it. God will finish what He has begun. He who began a good work in you will carry it to the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. And not just in you, but in the whole world. All things will be made new. All things. There will be no more curse, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old things will pass away and He who sits on the throne has already told us, Behold, I am making all things. Yeah. These words are trustworthy and true. And everything will be made new in such a way that now, what we experience now, will one day be only a faded and distant memory. Like a scar that is healed but no longer hurts. And it will be on top of that transformed into a beauty that we cannot now imagine. Amen? And so, let's pray with Zacharias. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pray, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and has redeemed His people. Father, we are so grateful that You have come in the person of Jesus Christ, you sent the Son of God to die on the cross for our sins, to be born on a barn with a dirt floor, to experience the reek of animals and the blood and filth of our world. You sent Him into all of our mess as one of us. And You redeemed for Yourself, a people for Your own possession, a people from every tribe and nation, a people from every tongue, people of all kinds, people of every ability, of every intellectual capacity, people of every race, people of every social strata. Father, we are amazed. And we pray knowing that our redemption fully and finally is coming. And we look forward to the day knowing that it is. Help us, Father, to remember and to trust. And on top of that, to be used of You by Your Holy Spirit to beat back the darkness in other people's lives. And proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ and helping them to, to see and to receive the best gift that has ever been given. Father, we pray in Jesus' name.
思う